Hello, listeners. My name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. Do you remember the two robbers who were crucified next to Jesus? One of them died on the cross, slandering Jesus till the end. But the other criminal makes the decision to believe Jesus as his Savior, and Jesus promises to meet him in paradise before he dies. A long time ago, I was actually jealous of that robber who was saved right before his death. I thought to be saved right before his death by saying a few words. He was really lucky. I wanted to be blessed like him so that I could live my life however I pleased and then be able to repent my sins and believe Jesus as my Savior right before my death. There was a part of me that believed that Jesus forgave the man and saved him too easily. Especially back then, the punishment of crucifixion was for the worst kind of criminals. I didn't understand how a criminal like that was told by Jesus that he would meet him in paradise. However, after reading the man's confession again in the gospel recently, it made me look back on my faith. We will continue this discussion after the first song. Fast falls the
a little jealous over how the robber was saved at the last minute of his life by just saying a few words. But if you read and study his confession, you can tell that it's not something that he made up at the last minute. It made me realize that his confession was not on a whim or as easy as I thought. In Luke chapter 23 verse 41, the robber rebukes the other criminal, saying that they both deserve to die for the crimes that they committed. And then he confessed to Jesus that he was a sinner. Then he continues to say something more important. Look at verse 41. It says, And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. He is saying that they are both sinners, but Jesus had done nothing wrong to deserve his crucifixion. Do you think that this confession was easy for him? I always thought that the robber had received his salvation very easily by saying a few words at the end of his life. But if you think about the situation they were in when this happened, I don't think it was easy for him to confess and witness about who Jesus really was at that moment. How did the robber see Jesus at that moment? Shouldn't he have seen Jesus as one of them? As criminals to be punished? Wasn't Jesus being crucified along with them like a criminal? If he had witnessed Jesus healing the sick, feeding thousands with just five loaves of bread and two fish, and had seen the crowds of people following Jesus, then his confession could have been an easy one to make. It would have been easy to believe that Jesus was the Son of God and Savior after witnessing all those miracles happening right in front of your face. However, it was much more difficult to say to Jesus, this man has done nothing wrong while he is getting spit on and getting mocked by all the people watching him. To see him getting whipped and bleeding from the stripes, and to be crucified just like they were as criminals. That confession was not an easy one to make. Wouldn't that confession come from someone with great faith? We remember how all the disciples that had followed Jesus disappeared when he was on trial. None of the disciples were there to defend Jesus and say that he was without sin. Even John who Jesus hugged deeply in his arms, was not able to defend him and say that he should not be crucified. Even Peter denied Jesus three times. All the sick people that Jesus healed, the people that were possessed, the dead that came back to life, and all the people that followed Jesus and witnessed all these miracles 
did not say a word while they watched Jesus being crucified on the cross. Even though the whole crowd of Israel demanded that Jesus be sentenced to death and crucified under Roman law, the only person that was able to say out loud that this man has done nothing wrong was not one of Jesus' beloved disciples, John or Peter, but a robber that was being crucified along with him.
Coming up next is sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is In the Beginning, Part 1, based on John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Tonight we have the joy of uh, beginning a new book study. It's kind of fun. What I'd like for you to do is open to the Gospel of John. John chapter 1. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We want to stop and ask for your blessing as we study through this gospel. Lord, we know that of all of the portions of your word that your Holy Spirit has used to draw people to you and give people a clear understanding of the truth of your saving work. This gospel has been used more than all. Lord, we ask that as we study through it, we would receive fresh illumination by the Holy Spirit, that we would see things we've never seen before, and that we would fall deeper in love with you, Lord Jesus, as a result of focusing on you week by week. That's our prayer now. In your name, Lord Jesus Christ, we pray, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. John chapter 1. The Gospel of John doesn't begin with a, an introduction of who the author is, but v- reliable church history and documentation, of course, give us the knowledge and that the writer is truly John the Apostle within the book. Uh, There are evidences that he has written the book somewhere between 69 AD, just before the destruction of the temple, to 90, uh, right near the time of his death, the gospel can be reliably placed. So, you know, in the, the latter part of the first century, John, the apostle, was the son of Zebedee, the brother of James, These two were surnamed by our Lord the Sons of Thunder. (laughs) I wonder why. Um, They were the kind of guys that you wouldn't mess with. Uh, Perhaps they were known for having um, a temperament that was thunder-like. And yet, John was of the inner circle of the Lord, the closest friend and disciple of Jesus. The Lord blessed him with the three epistles that he wrote. He wrote three letters. That's just a word that we use for the letters, the New Testament letters. John wrote first, second, and third John. If you can call third John a letter, it's more of a postcard when you look at it. And he wrote this gospel, and he was given the revelation of Jesus Christ. So uh, a fair chunk of our New Testament is coming from this amazing man that the Lord used in a mighty way. He was the pastor of the church in Ephesus for years. He had been 
arrested by the Roman emperor and the Roman emperor was going to kill him we're told by placing him in boiling oil he took him and he placed him in the boiling cauldron of oil and the apostle John didn't die nothing happened to him and so what do you do with a man that you can't kill he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos and there on that prison aisle in his aged years he wrote the revelation that Jesus gave him wrote it out for us the church history tells us that in his very elder years because he used uh, he lived way up into his 90s he would be carried into the church services there in Ephesus and they treated him with such great respect as we should treat our elders those who are elderly in the Lord and of course he had a godly spirit to match his years I think sometimes people think that growing older makes them have the right to be meaner but the, the uh, book of Psalms says the righteous are like the date palms. And the older a date palm gets, the sweeter its fruit is. The apostle John was like that. And they would say, Brother John, do you have a word for us? And he would always say, My little children love one another. Each and every time. Isn't that neat? Such a great man, great guy, changed by the Lord. The central truth of the Gospel of John is, is found in verse 12 of the first chapter, which says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. This is the central truth, that if you believe in Jesus, you become a child of God. You're not just born, though, a child of God. You can't be born and you are, because you're born in a family, you're a Christian. Or because you're born in a certain country, you're a Christian. You, you have to make a decision for Christ. You have to make a choice for Jesus. We have to place our faith in Him and understand His saving work in our behalf. And when that is done, verse 12 says, we become children of God. And we have the right, the authority, to be the children of God. The reason why this gospel was written is given to us in chapter 20. If we go back to the 20th chapter, we look at verses 30 and 31. Matthew was, the gospel of Matthew was written for a Jewish audience, if you will, written to catch Jewish interest. And you see it throughout the gospel because there are the references to the Old Testament and, and constantly Matthew says, thus Jesus was fulfilling this prophecy from the Old Testament, fulfilling this prophecy. The, as the prophet Isaiah said, as the prophet said, constantly throughout the gospel of Matthew, appealing to a Jewish audience. Now, Mark was written to Romans. Luke was written to Greeks. But John, the Gospel of John, is written to the whole world. And 
throughout the Gospel of John, you see references to the world, to the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So there's this continual reference to the saving work of Jesus for the whole world. And yet, there's, there are hundreds, of, there's over a hundred references to the Old Testament in the Gospel of John which uh, show us that he's well aware of his Jewish audience as well. The invitation in the other Gospels seems to be more come and, and hear, but in the Gospel of John, the invitation is come and see. Come on, look at who Jesus is. It is my favorite Gospel. I love the Gospel of John, and uh, I'm, I'm like so excited why is it written? Look at verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life, in his name. Two reasons the book is written, we're told. One is that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And that is a clear message in this book, that Jesus is God's Son, he is God the Son. And secondly, that you may believe in him. Place your faith in him and be saved. So it's a very much written as an evangelistic book. It's very much written as a book uh, proclaiming the deity of Christ and showing uh, through what Jesus did that he is indeed God the Son. So with that being said, let's, let's go to John and, and let's look at the uh, first chapter here. Let's look at the first chapter, John chapter 1, and we're going to begin with the first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, say it, was God. I just want to stop right there because at the time that John was writing, Gnosticism was a movement that was beginning to gain momentum in the world. The Gnostics were the ones who were known later, several hundred years later, for writing pseudo-gospels, false gospels. They would write fake gospels in the name of apostles. They would write, for instance, there's a gospel of Thomas. There's a gospel of Philip. There's been a more recently uh, discovered gospel of Judas. And these, these books, claiming to be written by men who were long dead at the, when these books were written, are, we know are, are fakes, they're forgeries. They are so unlike the scripture that you read that there is no comparison whatsoever. In fact, I think just a week ago, I, was, I read the Gospel of Philip. I wanted to see, you know, I hadn't read it before, and I thought, well, what's all the hoopla about? And it was uh, an interesting read. Uh, I'm glad I read it because when I compared it 
in the light of the scripture, in fact, you can get the message, the CD message, um, or DVD, rather. No, you can get it either, I guess, but the CD is what I'm thinking. You can pick it up in the tape ministry or listen to it, MP3, or, you know, listen to it online. It's called The Women in Jesus' Life. It was a message in response to the book, The Da Vinci Code. But as I was reading it, I thought, you know, this is so contrary to everything that the Bible teaches and is a direct attack upon Christianity. Gnosticism was just that. It was, it was a, a system of belief that believed that the body was evil, that um, didn't really matter what, what you did in the body because it was only the spirit that mattered, that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. That, well, he came in the flesh, but the Christ wasn't in the flesh. Teaching that, uh, that Jesus Christ could not have been really man and really God at the same time. And so John, John, I know, led by the Holy Spirit, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaks in a Genesis-like way here, doesn't he, in the very beginning? And magnificently and eloquently simply states, as does Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here he, he lets us know that God who created the heavens and the earth was none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, who was this word? Verse 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word that was in the beginning with God, the word who was God, the word who is God and who created the whole world is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no discrepancy with what Jesus taught there because Jesus said, here in the Gospel of John, we'll see later, unless you believe that I am, and he, there he's claiming the divine title, the I am that I am. He says, you will die in your sins. So, now the Bible teaches us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1, 1 and 2, the earth was without form and void. Darkness covered the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. Then later in Genesis chapter 1, you'll see God saying, let us make man in our own image. Now, who is God talking to when he says, let us make man in our own image? He's not talking to the angels, is he? He's speaking among the Trinity. And though the word Trinity isn't found in the Scripture, the truth of the triunity of God is found in the scripture. It's not debated that Father God is God indeed. Nor is it generally debated that the Holy Spirit is God. The New Testament then presents to us that Jesus, God's Messiah, his son, is God. The Old Testament does that 
as well. I think of Isaiah 9, 6, which says the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, the mighty God. He's going to be, you know, he's, he's, uh, he is God in the Old Testament. We're, we see that as well. So there, there is this Father is God, Spirit is God, the Son is God, yet there is only one God. When the Bible says in the beginning God created, it's the word Elohim, which is a plural word. It's not the, a, a simple a singular word, but it, it's a uniplural in Hebrew. It, it's the idea of a, a singular that in, in, within it has a plurality. Our word congregation would be something like that. I mean, you don't have a congregation of one. Our, if we say, I have a cluster of grapes, that implies within the thinking you have more than one. You don't have a cluster of one grape, do you? And so there is, within the word, the I am on the end of Hebrew words implies a plurality. It could be translated literally in the beginning gods created the heavens and the earth but the bible does not teach there's more than one god it teaches that god is one and yet he is father son and holy spirit distinct personalities yet sharing the same holy attributes and the same essence and so the new testament tells us that jesus was the word he is the one who spoke the word now, the book of Colossians, chapter 1, it's interesting how this message overlaps with what I was teaching this morning. Colossians, chapter 1, way now to the right, in verses, uh, verses 15, 16, 17, dovetails with what the Apostle John is teaching. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean that Jesus was born because and didn't exist once before. The title firstborn means preeminent one. He is the firstborn, the number one, the chief of all. That's the way the term was used the preeminent one over something. For by him, that is by Jesus, all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Jesus is the creator Everything holds together in him. Everything found his origin in him. He is the word. He is the one who spoke the world into existence. And isn't it significant, gang, that he is the one who has redeemed the world as well? We're his, not only by right of creation. We are his by right of redemption. He's paid for us. And it's just an incredible thought. In the beginning was the word. The, the ancient Hebrews, going back to John 1, the ancient Hebrews thought of one's words as an extension of his or her person. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
Your words were an extension of you. And this idea here is, is in the beginning was the logos, was the word. The Hebrew word is, uh, the Greek word is logos. The word, God's, the extension of God, the visible extension that we can see of God, his word made flesh. God can say, I am love, and we go, what does that mean? I'm just, what does that mean? I'm holy, I'm patient, I'm kind, I'm true, I'm faithful. What does that mean? But then God comes and we see his word made flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And God has explained himself. In Jesus. Isn't that just a wonderful idea? Want to know who God is? You have to know Jesus. And this is life eternal, that you might know him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. He is the only true representation of God. And he is the clearest representation of God. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things came into being by him. We read that now in Colossians. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus has created the whole world. He is Lord of the world. He is King of kings, Lord of lords. Verse 4, he is the origin of all life. In him was life. The life was the light of men. And verse 5, note this, the light shines in the darkness. The Greek actually says, and the light keeps on shining in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The darkness, that is the lack of light, the lack of illumination, did not comprehend the light. Again, Jesus is the one who says in the beginning, let there be what? Light. I'm feeling so small I'm standing here weeping As I'm coming clean Of the secrets I'm keeping Cause I've caused so much pain To the ones I love the most And I'm falling apart As I carry my heart To your throne I am completely surrendering Finally giving you everything You're my I held 
just weighed down my soul And there's nothing left Inside of me But I'm longing for you And I'm longing to be The man that you Gospel Ministry is looking for volunteers in tech editing to ensure the quality of the broadcast and the addition of more encouraging and empowering programs. Volunteer hours are three hours a week and anyone who's had experience with computer before can participate. And don't worry if you're not familiar with the sound editing program, Heart and Soul will provide basic training in editing, so if anyone is interested in helping out our ministry, please contact us at 602 866-8999 Thank you! Following is a program on the Sermon on the Mount. Hello listeners, this is Brian Winston with the Sermon on the Mount. We are currently studying the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew from chapter 5 to chapter 7. In chapter 5, we studied and reflected on the background of Jesus, the Beatitudes, and the way he showed himself to be the salt and light. Today, we will be studying the beginning of chapter 6 and take a look at what he had taught us in this chapter. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. 
But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1-18 through 18, talks about the correct way to pray, fast, and give aid to the needy. Giving aid is the relationship you have with your neighbor. Prayer is the relationship you have with God. And the act of fasting is the action that you choose to show your faith. In Jesus' time, the Sadducees and the Pharisees upheld these three things in their daily spiritual lives. Although they practiced these things, Jesus pointed out to them what might be looked upon as doing wrong in God's sight and what actions are and are not acceptable to God. When you look at verse 1, Jesus states, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Some people gave to the poor, prayed and fasted, so that others could see them. The Pharisees did this often. Jesus is saying that if you do these things to be seen by other people, then God in heaven will not reward you. Also, Jesus is judging the Pharisees in verses 2, 5, and 16. And those verses actually are saying similar things. Each verse starts off with, Do not be like the hypocrites. When you give to the needy, when you pray, and when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites. Not only that, but the hypocrites want to show what they are doing for the people because they want to be given honor and praise by the people. However, Jesus teaches us that it means you have already received your reward here in this world. Jesus is teaching us to do it in secret because then God can reward you. This is the point that Jesus was trying to make when it came to prayer, fasting and helping the needy. We will look at fasting and prayer at another time, but today we will look at giving aid to the needy. In the second verse, the reason why Jesus is giving judgment to those who are giving to the poor is because those people were doing it so they would get the honor and attention for themselves. Their motives were not pure in heart. Although they may have looked good to others in their outward appearance as they gave, God saw their hearts, and it was not done according to His will. This is why they wanted someone to sound the trumpets so that many people could focus on them when they were giving to others. When you picture them in your minds, do you question how they can do something like that? Do you think to yourself, if you were in that situation, that you would never do something like that? Yet whatever they did, their thoughts were just reflected in their actions. Well, for us, even though we don't show the same kind of actions, we can also have the same kind of motives for helping others. We can also crave acknowledgement and praise, even though it might not be from everyone, but even from a select few. We might also want to feel the personal satisfaction in knowing that we actually did something for other people. From a worldly point of view, there are not many people out there who think that there is something wrong with wanting praise. This is because they do not give aid to others for God, but because the act of helping others is something that can be meaningful for them. This is why people of the world think that helping others is not a responsibility, but a choice. Therefore, if it is a good act that they are not really required to do, but they do so anyways, it means that it is acceptable to receive praise from others. 
However, in the Bible, helping others is not a choice. But as children of God, it is something that God has commanded us to do. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 through 10 tells us, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleamings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. When you reflect on these words, it does not say take everything for yourself. It says to leave some behind for the poor and the sojourner. Deuteronomy chapter 15 verses 7 through 8 also says, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. That is the reason why we help the needy. It is because it is the command of God to help the poor and the needy. It is not to show yourself to others, to boast about your piety, but to follow the will of God. Those who do goodwill towards others to receive praise from them have already received their rewards. The praise and acknowledgement from others is the reward. But in Matthew chapter 6, verse 3 and 4, Jesus states, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This means to do it quietly to the point where you yourself will not even remember. Helping the needy is not to gain acknowledgement or to gain personal satisfaction, but to follow the will of God. Only God should see what we do, so that God who sees us doing these things in secret will give us the reward. We have to really look inside of ourselves about helping others. We have to think, are we giving aid to the needy because we like the praise we receive from others more than giving glory to God? Let us be those who help others in secret because we only want to give glory to God. Today we studied Matthew chapter 6 verses 1 through 4 in regards to helping others like Jesus talked about at the Sermon on the Mount. In our next broadcast, we will discuss what Jesus said about prayer. This concludes today's broadcast. Thank you for listening and God bless. Teach me something
was being crucified next to Jesus could have lived a life full of sin. We can believe that this robber was lucky to receive salvation right before his death after sinning all his life. But when I look at how this man was able to say out loud that Jesus had done nothing wrong to deserve his punishment, it makes me look back at my faith. I think about what I would do if I was there that day. Part of the crowd yelling and mocking Jesus, watching all this happen in front of my eyes. I wonder if I could be like the robber and be able to witness about who Jesus really is and take Him as my Savior and have faith that He is the Son of God at that moment. The robber was able to have faith that Jesus was the Son of God 
even though he saw him being crucified for being a criminal right next to him. He confessed that Jesus was the only one that could save him from his sins and asked Jesus for salvation. He believed and had faith that Jesus was the only way to his everlasting life in his kingdom. Jesus says to the robber in Luke chapter 23, verse 43, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Jesus came to this earth in humility to save all of us sinners from our sins. I hope that we can be the ones that are able to confess that Jesus is our Savior in any situation we face. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. I hope to meet all of you again next week. Have a wonderful week, and God bless. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my soul. This cornerstone, this solid ground. Firm through the fiercest drought and storm What heights of love, what depths of peace When fears are still, when striving cease My comforter, my all in all Here in the love of Christ I stand
from life's first cry till final breath. Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand.